welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we are investigating Weird War Tales number 20. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. This is the last recorded episode of 2021. So, Happy New Year, folks. Two months in. Uh, in episode seven, I mentioned I was going to try to complete my DC War Book collection this year. I had 47 when the year started and 36 at the time of this episode, of the time of the beginning episode. Uh, I got down to 16, three All-American Men of War, eight Army at War, one Our Fighting Forces, and four Star Spangled War stories are all that remain. Combinations of having to rein in spending at various parts of the year and how expensive some of these remaining books are hamstrung me a bit. Can I get 16 books in 2022? Well, I got 31 this year, so I like my odds. Tune in and see, folks. Also, several episodes ago, a listener brought to our attention that the Make War No More button that used to end all the stories had disappeared. Just like the floating skull cover logo, it too vanished from the pages of Weird War Tales once Joe Orlando took over for Joe Kubert in episode eight. Way for us to pay attention. Don't worry, folks. It's the show tagline. We'll keep the memory alive. And in episode 11, Sir Martin of Grey commented about the cartoon character attached to the Kilroy Was Here graffiti was named Chad. While flipping through a British book, the Wartime Scrapbook 1939-1945, compiled by Robert Opie, I discovered a photo of a collection of cards with Mr. Chad on them, which I have added to this episode's album. Based on the photo, no one seems to know where Chad came from. Too cool not to share, though. And we mentioned in the past that we have the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. We have now created the Luke Jack and Eddie Listener Killjoy Award for calling out our GI robot with in episode 14. So welcome to the cast. Moving on to our Intel report, The House, seven issues released from December 2016 to October 2017, but now available in a trade paperback. I picked mine up at Albany Comic Con last month. Lost in the woods during a violent snowstorm in World War II, a squad of American soldiers seeks shelter in an abandoned mansion, only to find the horrors inside are far worse than anything they could possibly imagine. Published by Sucker Productions, written by Philip Sevy, art by Drew Zucker. Yeah, that's something. Sucker Productions, Drew Zucker on art. I'm a little surprised I didn't get all tongue-tied on that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, before we dive into the issue, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And then when we return, Rich will hit you with the cover details. It was the early 1990s, the Dark Ages. The Transformers toy line was over, finished. Without toys in the shelves to advertise, the comic book series created to sell them was likewise canceled after an 80-issue run. Then... The impossible happened. I didn't believe you. I thought you were lying to me. Transformers were back in toy stores. And perhaps even more importantly, Transformers were back on the comic book shelves as well. But this run of Transformers comic proved to be somewhat different than what we'd seen before. I can implode neutrons! All of a sudden, the battle between the Autobots and Decepticons threatened to have real consequences. That was a low-yield neutron implosion! That was also the precise location of our transport! 
defend Braun! Exploding off of the comic book pages with darker, grittier storylines and vibrant, some might even say, neon colors. The, the very first thing I noticed was a very 90s art style. Truly, this was not your father's Autobot. Not Your Father's Autobot is a 13-episode, limited-run podcast beginning in early 2021. Join me, Mark Baker-Wright, also known as GB Blackrock, and my brother, Nick Wright, as we go through the entire Marvel US run of Transformers Generation 2, issue by issue, as we look at the series that brought Transformers back from oblivion. After this series, Transformers will never be the same. Look for Not Your Father's Autobot on Podbeam via blackrockstoybox.blogspot.com or wherever podcasts may be found. And we are back. So here we go with the cover detail for Weird War Tales number 20. Cover detail art by Louise Dominguez, of course. The mystery and madness of <gasps> the approved by the Comics Code Authority seal apparently fell off before the cover was photographed and no one noticed. It was approved, however. Whew, that was close. Anyway, the cover's setting is a tropical island in the colonial era with thatch huts and palm trees, probably sunset based on the pinks and oranges in the sky. The viewer looks up the open doorway of a hut to see a French officer or sergeant will call him a sergeant, pushing a smaller scared soldier with a bayoneted musket towards the doorway. There are five other soldiers hanging way back in the distance. From our perspective, on either side of the doorway, there's a huge, muscular, loincloth-wearing native brandishing a machete. In the immediate foreground, two skeletal hands are playing a drum. The French sergeant is bellowing, Forward, coward! There is no such thing as voodoo! Cover date, December 1973, on sale September 18th, 1973. If there's anything to kill Joy, I don't know what the hell it is. Comments and commendations. I love the shadows of the five other soldiers hanging back. You go, Jean-Pierre. We will watch from here. I like the blue and black coloring of the inside the hut imagery. Also, if you look close at the eyes of the two natives with machetes, you see they're either closed or or they have no pupils, probably the latter. That French private is about to have a very bad day. Very bad indeed, but I'm having a good day because I love this cover. It's You got the full bleed image, very well drawn, excellent use of color to create atmosphere, and for me, a great big old word balloon. I am a happy guy right away. Love this cover, can't wait to dig in. Having said that, we will dig in. So diving into the first story, uh, Rich, take it away. Death Watch, seven pages, story by Jack Olek, art by Don Perlin. Private John Price suddenly wakes up with a vision of his own death. He and his squad are taking shelter at a farmhouse. Despite warnings from his sergeant, he flees the house because he needs to take care of number one. But a German armored column is outside. And as soon as they see Price, they open fire. A shell explodes inside the room the squad is sheltering in. Everyone else is wounded or killed, but by some miracle, Price isn't even touched. As the Germans close in, Price ignores the pleas of his wounded buddies to help and runs. German troops bayonet the survivors. Price's flight takes him to the high ground overlooking the farmhouse. 
As he hides, he watches the Germans camouflage their tanks and set up an ambush. Before long, an American infantry column appears, headed for the house. Price could warn them, but his terror was still too great. Look out for number one, was still his mantra. The Germans spring their trap, and the column is annihilated. After the Germans leave, Price hurries down the hill and screams at the dead. You fools! It isn't my fault you're dead. There was nothing I could do. But then he hears a noise. Tanks! The Germans are coming back. The only place for Price to hide is under the house's trap door to the cellar. As he trembles and sweats in fear, footsteps into the house. Voices. They're in English. Americans. He warily opens the trap door and sees two U.S. soldiers examining the dead in the room. Poor devils. Imagine getting it on the very last day of the war. Not a single survivor. Price scrambles out happily. He made it. He excitedly starts to talk to the ranking officer. But the captain doesn't answer. As the two men return to their tank to radio Graves' registration, Price is puzzled why no one can hear him. But then the truth becomes evident. That first German shell hadn't left him untouched. Price had never left the farmhouse at all. His body lay in the rubble with those of the rest of his squad. His dream warning to look up for number one had actually gotten everyone killed. As they say, the coward dies many times, the brave man only once. All right, so we've got no killjoy on that one. So I'll kick off our comments and commendations by saying uh, we got a great story here, in my opinion, incredibly well drawn and laid out by Perlin. Every panel of this thing filled with great character acting, perfect angle choices, solid storytelling. I just wonder if anyone inked Don Perlin's pencils here um, at all, or if it was just him, because this is some of the best work I've seen by him. He, he just really kicks out the jams on this story. So, <laughs> and uh, we got Jellybean. Uh, is that Jellybean commenting? Yep. New, new, new dog, ladies and gentlemen. She's uh, letting everyone know about something going on in the background right now. And now she's coming back. Okay. <laughs> she starts doing that again. I'm muted on my end. Oh, she's, she's going. All right. So, yeah, I mean, again, a great, great piece of work by Don Perlin here. And yes, we all saw the twist coming as we read the story, but I chalked that up to decades of reading and watching stories like this on our part. It was still very well implemented, in my opinion, and the somewhat judgmental narration certainly helped add color to the delivery. On the final panel of page four, the narrative caption reads, almost in that moment, Price behaved like a man. It's the most awkward piece of writing in the story, since in that moment, Price almost behaved like a man would have worked much better. And it's our first tinkling of the old comics man bell with the uh, somewhat sexist attitude in there. It reminds me of the bit from the uh, the Godfather, that one scene, you can act like a man from that movie. So uh, look that up on YouTube. They've, they've got it nice and, you know, just clipped out for you art wise uh rich in his comments below grabbed up uh, the real stunner for me storytelling wise but i'll offer up the other silent example of the price of price's cowardice first panel on page five just devastating as the troops he could have warned get blown to smithereens so uh there's my cnc and uh let rich hit you with his olick goes out of his way to make sure you know what kind of a man Price is. 
half the time he's referred to as a coward or a man that did not deserve to live. His craven flight went unseen. Page three, panel three, where a wounded American is being finished off by a German bayonet as Price runs away in the background is one that holds you for a bit. Page six, panel five. Price cowering in the basement is exceedingly well drawn by Perlin. And page seven, panel two, the joy on Price's face when he thinks he's survived, you just want to punch him. And a later catch, page one, panel two, does Price look a little bit like Gollum from Lord of the Rings? Imagine a bald cap. You'll see it. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. I went back and looked when I read that and you're part of the script. And I'm like, yeah, they were really making this guy despicable. Yes. <laughs> Cause he really does. He takes on like that, you know, like that, that visage of Gollum and he's just a completely, yeah, he's, he's just, a, he's a completely reprehensible coward in the story. And, uh, and whew, like, like you said, that one panel on that makes you just want to punch him. Just again, that, that character acting by Perlin's art in the story this is great. Absolutely great. So we're off to a good start and uh, we'll see if we can follow that up with the second story in the issue. It's the cover story and it's called Operation Voodoo. (laughs) Insert drums here. Yeah. Well, don't worry about that. They're coming. Uh, We got seven pages, stories by Arnold Drake, art by Alfredo Alcala. So more of our uh, usual cast here. Synopsis goes like this. 1789, St. Dominique, Captain Dubois, is sent to capture the rebel slave leader, Jean-Jacques, uh, I'm not even going to try Desaline. to say it. Dessalines. We'll call yeah. this Dessalines. Uh, but nightfall comes and Dubois hasn't returned. Slave drums are heard in the distance and Colonel Lafavre, Lafave. Lafave. Lafave, is it we'll Lafave? Lafave. We'll what, Lafave. About, what about Brett Favre? so all right slave drums are heard in the distance we're having a good time on this one folks it's gonna be so easy to listen to i swear slave drums are heard in the distance and colonel lafave's native aide translates the message dubois troops had been ambushed by rebels and wiped out dubois himself had been taken captive by the juju man who had weaved his magic on the frenchman dubois is the only survivor sick but he is returning screaming a voodoo incantation dubois his uniform in shreds bursts from the jungle with a knife and charges the colonel who has no choice but to shoot the colonel is shocked that hadn't been dubois voice it was the voice of death the voice of voodoo weeks later general dugard head of french military intelligence arrives with a plan to crush the rebels voodoo only works on those that believe in it. And Dessaline, as I'm going to say it, must believe in it. So use it against him and make sure he knows voodoo is being worked against him. Dugard meets with Umamba, the second best juju man on the island, and tells him that a man must die by magic. It's expensive, but it can be done. Dugard agrees to pay upon completion of the task. All Umamba needs is hair from the victim's head, the bullet from his gun, and some soil from where he stands. Lefebvre's agents acquire the witch doctor's supplies. The hair is placed within a clay doll and is pitched into the fire at Umamba's feet as the witch doctor begins to chant. Miles away, De Saline is awoken by a piercing pain in his head, and he knows the evil magic has begun. 
The soil from where he stood is rubbed into a goat's hair by the witch doctor, which is then shot by the bullet from Desalinay's gun. Far away, the slave leader screams, clutches his chest, and dies. At the same time this is happening, the Salonais men are surrounded by Lefebvre's troops at a nearby plantation. They fight well, but without their leader, they are overwhelmed and wiped out. The revolt is over. The next morning, Dugard pays Umamba for a job well done. Accepting payment, Umamba remarks that someone had apparently cut some of the general's hair last night. Dubois felt his head and realized it was true. A quick check of his pistol revealed it to be empty and some kneaded soil must have been gathered as well. Dubois smells something burning, the way the clay doll had smelled. A pain fills his insides, and he collapses to the ground, begging Umamba for help. But there is no help to be had. Dubois hadn't told him that the man to be killed by voodoo was Desalinay. Now, Desalinay's witch doctor, the best on the island, has even the score. So uh, there's our synopsis, and Rich has got a little bit of killjoy for this one. Yeah, actually, I'm going to give you a little bit of a self-kill, Troy, because as Max is reading the script, I realized that when I had tweaked the script from earlier, I hadn't fixed all the names. So the back, like, uh, quarter of when Max was saying, you know, Dubois felt his head and Dubois smelled something burning and Dubois hadn't told him, that was all supposed to be General Dugard. So that was my oops. So I caught that. So I don't have to do any retroactive history for next time. So my bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. We just make the rules. We don't follow them. Hey, but hey, we caught that. So anyway. Killjoy, history minute, whatever. Oh my God, where the hell to start? <laughs> the revolution in what is now Haiti didn't start until 1791. So right off the bat, Drake goes awry. The revolution successfully ended in 1804. Uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalin didn't become a leader in the revolt until 1802 when leader Toissaint Louverture, here, here I am not understanding you know the, the how to pronounce some of these names either uh was betrayed and captured by the french uh he later died in a french prison in 1803 Desalines was the first ruler of an independent haiti first as governor general then as emperor jacques the first from 1804 until being assassinated in 1806 under his rule haiti was the first nation in the in the americas to permanently abolish slavery the successful slave revolt terrified plantation owners in the American South who began to use more extreme methods to keep their slaves in line. The U.S. didn't even establish diplomatic relations with Haiti until 1862, almost 60 years later, during the Civil War. Now, I don't know if Dessalin believed in voodoo or not, but this whole story doesn't do him or his accomplishments justice. Hell, Haiti's national anthem, Le Dessalinienne, is named in his honor. Almost any other revolt leader would have been better placed here. And, you know, comments and combinations. We talk about ringing the old comics bell, nice and loud. Man, this ain't a bell. This is an air raid siren. Yikes, yikes, yikes. <laughs> but I'm not going to steal Max's thunder this time, as I often do, because I write the scripts. I like page two, panel one, where the slaves are swarming the French soldiers. Uh, shadows, body language, etc good stuff i will say this is the second issue in a row with a voodoo nod in it although much bigger in this one obviously another literary theme of the 1970s yeah it <laughs> certainly was like this is one of those things that was just in pop culture a lot like quicksand you know <laughs> so yes the old comics man bell certainly ringeth here but 
not as loudly as I was afraid it might. Still pretty loud, don't get me wrong. <laughs> this is some seriously cringeworthy stuff on display here, mostly with the broken English, well, French, but you know, dialogue on the part of the native Haitians, their state of dress, and so forth. However, the, the natives were not depicted as badly in a physical sense as I was preparing myself for, but that might be because I've been looking at a lot of comics from the 1940s lately, so making my own bell curve there. But yeah, it's it gets a pretty good ring in this time around. For I guess the only minor quote-unquote killjoy I could even kind of add, the term witch doctor would probably not be used by the natives, but we do have the term Haugen or Haugen as I'm used to seeing it spelled. It is used by Umamba, so witch doctor is likely used just for expediency when communicating with the French and so forth. As for the story, it was okay for me. I, I got some likely unintended chuckles, like on page two, panel five, when the French officer said, it sounded like the voice of death. The voice of voodoo. I, I, I just couldn't help but hear like organs come in at the end there. And the expression on his face looked a little more comical than horrific. The twist was okay, but just barely seated in there by one line of Umamba's dialogue, I felt. The art, however, was excellent. This gave me classics illustrated vibes, but with more talent and effort than I recall being put into those books. Since I loved all the art, I'll call out the one very nice touch of the smiling, cartoony voodoo doll in the upper right corner of the story's title banner. Because, you know, nice touch there. <laughs> so Now you got me looking at it. So Oh, yeah. That, that, it's kind of amusing. <laughs> it's a cute little thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. We got, we got, you know, we've got a little bit of the, the voodoo that they, they do so well for story two. And now with a showcase of stuff that Rich is all about, we're going to get into story number three. Okay. Death is a Green Man. Six pages, again. Story by Arnold Drake. Art by Alfredo Alcala. Royal Air Force pilot Captain Ray Danner flies a Spitfire fighter with the 106th Squadron during the Battle of Britain. He belly lands his badly shot up bird after a dogfight and goes into cardiac arrest. The medics use wires in the plane's ignition to shock his heart into beating again. Resting in the base hospital, the other pilots of the squadron come in to check up on him. Danner is shocked to see one of them, Randy Moore, standing there with green skin and lifeless, sunken eyes. Moore acts perfectly normal otherwise. Only Danner can see the phenomenon. The next day, the fighters go up to engage the Luftwaffe off Calais. Moore is shot down and killed. It's an amazing coincidence. Danner is talking to Herb Childs afterwards and is horrified the same thing happened to that pilot. The next day, over the North Sea, the patrolling fighters surprise two German U-boats refueling next to a tanker and dive into attack. Child's fighter takes a direct hit from anti-aircraft fire and explodes. Restored to flight status the day after that, Danner curses his new gift, recognizing he probably got it as a result of being dead for a few minutes after his crash. As he prepares for his mission, he's stunned to see his own green face staring back at him from the shaving mirror. Knowing he's next, he decides to cheat the fates by placing himself on sick call and not going on the upcoming mission. The flight surgeon gives Danner a shot of the new miracle drug penicillin to fight off whatever it is that's bothering him, and Danner mentally wishes the pilot flying in his place the best. But all the planes come back from the mission. Danner is confused by this and feels rotten for some reason. Suddenly, he's overcome by a fever. His head feels like it's coming apart and he can't breathe. 
he collapses and dies from an allergy to penicillin. Killjoy History Minute. Here we go again. Me being me, I looked up the 106 Squadron. During World War II, the 106th initially flew Handley Page Hampton twin-engine medium bombers and ended up in the Avro Lancaster four-engine heavy bomber. So there was a 106 squadron, they just didn't fly fighters. Also, the colorists often botched the Spitfire's roundel insignias, which actually happens a lot in these stories. Penicillin was a new wonder drug as World War II was getting underway. Throughout history, infections had killed more soldiers than battle injuries. During the First World War, deaths from bacterial pneumonia was 18%. During the Second World War, it plummeted to less than 1%. Thousands of lives were saved by the drug's development, but shockingly had no equal in Germany. That said, it was still pretty rare in 1940 and only used in dire cases. So a casual preemptive shot to Captain Danner would have been highly unlikely. Also, this, along the same lines, deaths due to penicillin allergies are very uncommon. Sudden ones even more so. Unlikely gift. Unlikely death. Sucks to be you. Max. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when I saw that in the script, I'm like, sucks to be you, Max, because I am supposedly allergic to penicillin. They've been telling me that since I was a kid. And uh, I don't know how they determined it, but um, I read the end of the story and I'm like, damn, I better... <laughs> Make sure I mention that like I always do when they ask me. <laughs> <laughs> from my CNC, I'll say like, you know, coming back from death and being able to see its mark is a time-honored trope indeed, even within this very title. Uh, but once or already. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So this was a fine implementation of that trope, though, with some nice twists on the standard way this kind of thing usually plays out. I especially liked how Danner decided to keep his visions to himself. On page five, panel three, he's realizing quite reasonably that it was a uh, talent without any value. So for you have like someone just kind of taking a little meta approach to that, like, oh, I tell somebody that their face looks green and only I can see it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out. You know, no one's going to believe me. So he actually thought that in story. So I thought that was pretty cool. The penicillin thing irked me a bit, kind of in the way you just said, not just because of my own situation, but the doc just going, oh, you feel sick? Here's some new stuff we haven't really tested much. Bam, you know, <laughs> shoot that right in you. So it was still a fun tale. Alcala does it again. The work here is gorgeous as his always is, but I'll call out two moments of perhaps unintentional comedy, as seems to be one of my themes this time around. The last two panels on page four, you got that one guy flying who just attacked the U-boats going thumbs up. Next panel, boom, nothing. There's no dialogue, no, no, just like, you don't even see what shot him. It's just like, he's like, hey, hey, and then boom, he's dead. It's like so well-timed comedically that it felt like it was meant to be seen that way. Like, you know what happens next, folks? <laughs> Like the final panel on page five, when Danner is smiling to himself while still looking like the green man. I, I love that look. I wanted them to keep it on his face longer. Like when he was getting the shot, etc. like all the way to the end of the story, he's just this smiling green zombie, you know, jerk to the end of the story. But yeah, I, it was still a great story. I, I, the art's fantastic. I liked the approach to a twist that's been used a million times here to a trope rather. So yeah, yeah, I dug it. What did you think, man? Oh, like I just said, you know, we just had a March for Death story in episode 15, The Ultimate Weapon. I like this one better. We also had a Cowards Can't Cheat Death story earlier in this very issue. 
I like this one better too. <laughs> uh, maybe Danner would have been shot down anyway. We'll never know. Different pilots do different things. As always, I love Alcala's interpretation of death, the narrator. I'll use page one panel one as my example for him so I can incorporate my bitch about the RAF roundels and acknowledge the way he drew the great clouds in the same panel. I'll toss in page two, panel five, just to get a green man shot included in the album. Not a big fan of the title, though. There had to be a better one out there. Yeah, who knows? Still, yeah, like you said, that 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 first page with the clouds and her this is just a freaking beautiful drawing. Like, ah, my God. Uh, I think people get it that we kind of like uh, Alcala around here. So moving on, we got a very special one this time around. We're heading into the letters page, our APO Weird War Tales. But uh, one of our listeners is heading in there with us. Rich, why don't you explain what I'm talking about? Indeed. I've been waiting for this issue ever since podcast follower Lee Sullivan informed us he was a 12-year-old opinionated smart aleck when he submitted a letter to this comic's letters page about Weird War Tales number 15. Richard Lee Sullivan from Houston, Texas says, Dear Joe, Weird War number 15 was bad. It had too much emphasis on the weird and not enough on the war. I enjoyed Ace King just flew in from hell, though. The story was good, and the art was great. Both of the other two stories had fair art, and the ultimate weapon had a so-so script. But my main complaint is that if I wanted to read that kind of story, I could have bought House of Mystery or House of Secrets, etc. Get the message? Balance the weird and the war out evenly. About the skeleton in the trench coat. I think that when you dropped the lead-in story, the magazine went kaput. You're just copying all the other mystery mags by having one guy introduce all the stories. How about using a different character to introduce the stories in each issue, like Hubert did? I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but I think Weird War Tales is going sour. Let's have more issues like number one, Richard Lee Sullivan, Houston, Texas. And the response was, dear Richard, when there were full-length introductory stories and Weird War Tales, it was a 52-page magazine and mostly reprint. Now that it's a standard-sized mag and all new, there isn't enough room for an intro story, so I settle for a host character to give the material some continuity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's not wrong. I mean, some of these framing sequences were awesome, but I get Orlando's excuse. Like I said, there's two other letters addressing the weird, uh, the World War One parachute killjoy. It's an awesome letters page, actually. Orlando gets a bit snippy. <laughs> Yeah, it's just so cool to see someone that has, you know, has been listening to our show appear in APO Weird War Tales and kind of giving it to Joe Orlando to like kind of going at him. (laughs) You were 12, I was three. Okay, you're three or four. That (laughs) that is like, that is like what we're like, that I feel well represented, you know, like our, one of our listeners is in there and he's, and he's making waves. He's causing trouble. (laughs) I love it. Welcome to to the cast. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like you belong. You are one of us. So you mentioned the Weird War One Parachute Killjoys and I liked one of those letters a lot especially the response to it. So I'll take this one. It starts out, Dear Joe, in Ace King, you had a parachute draped over the last L in hell on the splash page. And again, on page six, a chute was shown. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you will find that in World War I, the pilots of fighting planes did not use chutes. And this comes from Ronald Houston of uh, Shioya. 
Sioya, Sioya, yeah, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's Ronald Houston from Illinois. <laughs> and there was someone above him that had very much the same comment too. Joe responds and says, Dear Ron and Mike, to quote our illustrious war editor from across the hall, German pilots used parachutes the last year of the war. Allied pilots were forbidden to. Hey, Arch, how come you can't come? How come you can't stay in your own letter column? And Joe goes on to say, a little thought. If you're both so interested in weird war tales that you carefully examine each issue for technical errors, why don't you spend a little time commenting on the individual stories in each issue to help shape the style of weird war tales? So yeah, you said Joe gets a little snippy. He's like, are you reading anything else? But like looking to see if we got the wrong buckle on the boot or something, you know? <laughs> what do you? What kind of hobby is this that you have? Well, <laughs> At the very, very end of the letters page, you know, he wraps it up. And so, with Blair squaring off against Boswell and Sullivan against Tiersten and Goodwin against Houston, we again take leave of the only battle comic that gives you wars in the letter call. <laughs> it fits. I love it. Joe knows how to make the best of it. I mean, Kubert definitely had a little more of the sarcasm and threw more elbows, but I think Joe's, I think Joe Orlando's catching on here. So, so a, a landmark APO Weird War Tales leads us to our spotlighted ads for the issue. Now, I'll kick it off because Rich has the best ad. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'll get to go first. That's how it works. We have an ad here. It's one of these ads that you've seen in a million comic books. It's an ad for uh, mailing away to learn how to do karate. And um, I want to read most of the text in this ad because I, I love these things. You've got the giant word karate in very stereotypical that, that pointed kind of saber looking font. Underneath that is Judo Savate, the greatest self-defense system known to man. When you complete our course, you will have the ability to break planks of wood in half with your bare hands. Regardless of your age, you can master this total defense system. It doesn't require muscles or size to be a master at self-defense, but it does require know-how. The knowledge of karate has enabled small, slight men like you, comic book reader, <laughs> to successfully and completely protect themselves from men twice their size. So yeah, apparently I could take out a guy who's like, you know, 11 and a half feet tall. I, if I just mail, I, I better mail away for this quick. In just seconds, the karate master can completely immobilize any attacker, destroying him. Easy to learn. Free brochure reveals self-defense techniques. Send 25 cents for postage and handling. So for a quarter, you can learn how to take out someone who's like 12 feet tall, even if you don't exercise. I think that's a pretty good deal. And, and the cartoon image of a dude throwing his fist into the camera up top looks like he's definitely supposed to be Chuck Norris, man. So they are like, they're going for it. You know, with all, with, with all these secrets they have to offer, how could you resist? Again, I send it out there to anyone listening. If anyone has an example of what these brochures look like after you sent away for them, I need to know, and I'm I'm going to forget to go looking as soon as we hit stop record. So help me out. He will, folks. He will. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Usually, I don't go back to the well for a product that we've already covered, but MPC has released two more Pirates of the Caribbean Zap Action Dioramas. So we get a two-page centerfold spread perfectly placed in the middle of Operation Voodoo. The word is out, and the word is zap action. 
the zap action in MPC's new pirate scene kit series based on Walt Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, the most popular attraction in Disneyland. They're the biggest hit today in kits. No wonder. First, you build these exciting and detailed scenes. Then, at the touch of a lever, release zap action and the pirates perform a variety of surprise actions and the zap action can be reset and released over and over again building fun action fun get in on it now pirates strike again ghost of the treasure guard here's a great model scene to build with double zap action a duel over treasure at the touch of a button zap action the captain slashes and misses a second button and zap action. The guard swings up his footlock and has the drop on Captain Evil Heart because, of course, it's Captain Evil Heart. Freed in the nick of time. Danger everywhere. Two lads on a flimsy raft under attack by an unfriendly octopus. But the a touch of the button and double zap action. The first mate swings his cutlass down on the chain and the second mate springs up. Freed in the nick of time. Man. I am really starting to want to look for these. <laughs> this this ad is incredible to look at. I love the double page format. It's drawn really well. It, it makes me hope like these models look anything near as cool as these drawings. But even if they don't, I mean, like you said, how can you not want these things? And, and I just want to make it known, like for, I didn't notice this before you started reading the script, but I, uh, from this day forward, would like to be referred to as Captain Evil Heart. <laughs> This thing is fantastic. These are phenomenal. Like I said, just like just like the last one. The last one was like that was a four-page ad the first time. And yeah, these things are just outstanding. I mean, my God. <laughs> yep. So so pretty uh seems like it's been a pretty good issue. So why don't we see what we think in our little section called Got Any Last Words? Three thoroughly enjoyable stories. Even the oof one gives us plenty to talk about. And isn't that really the point? Between the art and the plot, I have to give Death is a Green Man the win. The title is arguably one of the worst ones we've ever seen in these pages. Good ads, great letters page. This issue is a win. Yep, gotta agree. Great issue. And even with the Alcala art being more impressive in some ways, the win for me goes to Death Watch. I really enjoyed that story, but it's a close race between all three this time around for me. I dug it. So having gotten all that out of the way, it's time to move on to the Dead Letter Office, where we take a look at who liked, shared, commented, and so forth on our episodes on social media and in our Gmail address. This one is taking a look at people's reactions to episode 18, which covered... Weird War Tales number 15, an episode that we broadcast on December 25th, put it out a little bit early for Christmas and uh, let people enjoy it while they ignored their in-laws and stuff like that. So over on Twitter, we got likes and stuff like that from Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Bill at Spy Vinyl. Uh, we got one from Cosmos. This is a new one at Cosmos Infinite Zero. Uh, we got our buddy, Billy Delicious, Professor Frenzy, Mr. Uh, Dan Brown at Pack Cells. And Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army. Dave's Comic Heroes blog stopped by. Another new one with a great name. The damnedest bastard you ever met at damnedest bastard on Twitter. And seems to be quite a fan of Conan, but only the uh, Robert E. Howard Conan. So it makes a big point about that. So be careful. 
going over there. This is the dampest bastard you ever met. And he's serious about Conan. <laughs> we also got a uh, uh, Nick Caruso from the Right Between the Eyes Kiss podcast. We've got Long Box of Darkness. I got Herman stopping by. Uh, Into the Weird. We have Billy D's uh, Into the Weird account stopping by. Star Rocket Radio from those two, uh, giving us some, some love over on Twitter. And Clinton Robinson from Coffee and Comics stopped by. Now, jumping over to the swampy waters of Facebook, we have David Steele, Ranger Gord, Billy D, Ken Boutillier, Herschel Mimas, uh, Herschel Mimas, uh, Brian Matthews, and Matt Caruso, and new fan Bill Mooney, and Peter Watson, and our good buddy Kurt Matilla, and Daniel Rapoli. Now, over on Facebook, we got some commentary. Ranger Gord of the Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders vigilante podcast, stops by to say, I heard your comment about a two-page toy ad you thought might have been Corgi Boy. You might also be on the lookout for the Ready Rangers backpack kits. I never had one, but thought it would have been a great outdoor activity center that included walkie-talkies, holographic mirrors, flashlight, and all kinds of goodies. I think they were out in 74 and 75. And I think they also tried to sell helmets and belts with the Ready Ranger brand. So uh, I believe Rich stops in to, to answer him and yep. says, the back covers of issue 21 and 22 are ads for the Ready Rangers backpack. We haven't recorded those episodes yet, but maybe Max will select it as his favorite ad in one. <laughs> so, I selected other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So there you go. And we got a comment from our new listener, Bill Mooney, who said, great issue. Ace King was a great observation on the glorification of war and of blind hero worship and how it should not be encouraged in children. Make war no more. That was very cool to see. And uh, over on Gmail, our esteemed colleague, Jason Zeller, the initiator and uh, so far sole winner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listening Award, stops by to say, Dear Dead Letter Office, I really like the cover of issue 15 with a giant skull face cloud looming over the battlefield. I had mixed feelings about the first story. It was wonderful for the boy to meet his gramps and seeing him in action, but there was not much time for him to visit with his hero. They were immediately thrust into the horrors of war and all the enemy died horrible deaths and the experience really seemed geared to turn Tommy's interests elsewhere. It was a sad ending with the grandfather screaming, I die at the end. <laughs> Trying to do it the way you did in the episode, man. I do think kids have romanticized ideas about war where it is all fun and games without realizing the true cost. Everyone I know had those imaginary war games as a child that we acted out. Pirates of the Caribbean sets looked amazing I want them all. Well, wait, there's more in this episode. <laughs> the Survivor was a pretty good story about the Viking warriors battling a witch and monsters, but the ending left something to be desired. I don't understand the witch's motivations. If she wanted them dead, why did she not just let them starve or die of thirst? Why did she trick them into drinking the water, but then never show up again to proclaim she won? The stories had great monsters and battle scenes, though. I mean, Jason, you ever think that the witch just might have been bored? How many people does she get on the island to entertain herself with? <laughs> but good point. There was really no logic to what she was doing to them. But I, again, I just think, you know, you got magic powers and no one ever comes to visit. You're going to use them when you get a visitor. So he goes on to say the ultimate weapon gave me a Conan the Barbarian feel to it in the art. I too was confused as they showed us several pages of 
his illusions and did not understand exactly what the spell was or how he was killed by the illusions. The idea of seeing death on faces made me think of, and here we go, Jason with his Twilight Zone knowledge made him think of the Purple Testament from the Twilight Zone about a soldier who saw death in his fellow soldiers' faces before they died and no one believed him. So our character Danner had seen that episode, so he knew no one was going to buy it because uh, they play fast and loose with time in the Weird War. Then one day he saw death in his own reflection. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, take care, guys, and I look forward to, forward to many more Weird War tales in 2022. Jason, so that is our buddy Jason stopping by. And we've got a new email here from a new listener, Mike Stewart. And he writes in to say, hey, Warriors, this is just a quick note to thank you for doing this great podcast. As both a historian and comics fan, I appreciate both the review of the old Weird War issues and the historical criticisms alike. It's like I'm reading a comic and competing to see if I can hit as many of the historical inaccuracies as rich <laughs> uh -oh, that sounds like a challenge oh yeah <laughs> oh wait man. there we go he says i read weird war back in the late 70s and while a disability blindness prevents me from reading them again or the ones i missed back in the day your show lets me feel like i can still pick up back issues and make war no more Thanks again, and keep up the good work, Mike in Texas. Now, I wrote back immediately, and this email just came in today. I said, Mike, we are honored to have you aboard. Nothing could make us feel more useful than being able to rekindle the love of comic books for someone like yourself. We'll try even harder from here on out to help you feel like you're reading along with us. And please let us know if Rich gets anything wrong. Anything at all, really. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And then I said, P.S., this email of yours is going to be discussed in the Dead Letter office today as we record an episode that will be published in early March. And as I'm reading this, Mike just wrote back in and said, we'll do. <laughs> he said, we'll do. And I'll look forward to the March show. So there you go. I mean, how cool is that? Like someone who can no longer physically read the comics is jumping in the show with us and reliving them and you know, and, and enjoying them anyway. And to me, like, again, I, I reiterate this every now and then I didn't think we'd have an audience more than rich and myself when I started this show, but um, it's been very cool to see how many people jump in and want to talk and want to re-experience this series with us. And especially with, with Mike jumping in here, I feel like I'm even more committed to having to finish this project to, beyond the fact that I, I, uh, you know, hitched my, my wagon to rich here. So he's never going to let me go until I drop. <laughs> hey Max, don't worry. We have a hundred issues left to go. <laughs> exactly. So, 304, not but, even counting the special missions. <laughs> no, but given, given the fact that we've got people like Mike and people like Jason along and all you guys out there that we have to finish this, we, we have to get to the end you guys will be responsible for, for me finishing a massive project for, I don't know, the first time in my life. We'll see. It's only going to take us about six more years. So, you know, we'll get there. So that's the, uh, that's the dead letter office and a heck of a one for this time around. We're going to let Rich hitch it with the teaser for the next episode. It's what you're here for. Girls in love 45. Oh, wrong, wrong podcast. Uh, Weird War Tales 21. Leonardo da Vinci. Time traveling eyeglasses, the comic mobile. Two weeks? Oh, why does time drag so slowly this time of year? 
Oh, mostly because of me, because, you know, <laughs> I uh, procrastinate. But uh, yeah, Girls in Love 45. Hey, man, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby invented the romance comic. I will, I will do that issue. All right. So, <laughs> Get a special mission. <laughs> yeah. Keep your, keep your ears open for the special missions, people. We may get there. Okay. And until... I may have started something I can't finish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't finish. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so, that's it for this episode. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We are the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war no more. Thank you.